Welcome to the Disrupt Education Podcast. I'm Peter Hostrasser, your host. Hey, thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Do me a favor, hit that subscribe button if you haven't done that, and leave some feedback. I always love feedback. It's the best way to get better. If you have a moment, head over to disrupteducation.co. That's my blog. You'll see everything uh, around education reform and disrupting education. You can see where I'm going to be presenting, and also we can connect there too. On this episode of Disrupt Education, I have Benjamin Rad. Benjamin Rad fleed Iran in the 70s and made his way all the way to Stanford Law and being a professor. And now he's actually the co-founder of Fascination Lab. It's an amazing journey. He teaches people through experiences, real life experiences. You don't want to miss this. Hang out with us. We'll be right back with Benjamin Rad. I recently asked Jake, who is a sophomore in high school, why he uses SpikeView to share his learning journey. Um, I think it's really cool that you know SpikeView is really putting that abstract into con- concrete data and knowledge, and then displaying that to the outside world. And I think SpikeView is different than anything else out there. Um, like I said before, because it's really taking that you know the, that those abstract skill sets and those abstract experiences and putting them into data that you know is actually mathematic and scientific and um, you know that matches you up with the best programs and um, you know best places for you. People um, you know who are really trying to make those changes in the world and they're going to be using SpikeView because SpikeView is that app where you can you know take take those experiences and take those passions and put them out there. Um, and share with other people. And that's, you know, that's really powerful. And that, you know, that professional networking piece, um, you know, to be with other like-minded teenagers, that puts you ahead. That puts you ahead in a lot of ways. And so, um, you know, I think anyone who uses Spike View right now has a leg up in the future and excited to see, you know, where those Spike View alumni head up. Head to spikeview.com. Start your portfolio now for free. Have you ever thought about creating courses and training online? Without a partner to guide you through that process, you're going to be stressed about why your learners aren't engaged or how to create updated content, missing revenue opportunities, and not even having enough time. I know because I create online courses. And I have a solution for you, eLearning Partners. You don't have to be overwhelmed anymore. Become a partner with eLearning Partners to create your courses and training stress-free and achieve the results you want to see. If you are thinking about wanting to create a course or training online and you believe like I believe that no expertise should go unheard, then click the eLearning Partners link in the notes of this podcast and you can start your journey to create your courses and training stress-free. If you want all that and more from the eLearning Partners, hit the link in the podcast notes because there's a free masterclass for you to take. That's right, a free masterclass. Hit that link today. The Disrupt Education vlog can be found on YouTube. To hear it in podcast form, search Disrupt Education on any of the following podcast platforms. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, Spotify, or Stitcher. Welcome to this episode of Disrupt Education. I'm Peter Hostrasser. Thank you so much for hanging out with us today. Do me a favor, hit that subscribe button. And we love feedback. So if you can drop us a review, five stars are always great. 
have a great show today. We have the founder of the Fascination Lab, Ben Rad, is with us today. Ben, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Peter. Excited to be here. Awesome, awesome. So, all right, there's a lot with before we get fascinating here. Um, but let's uh, let's. Can you? Would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of a uh, backstory about who you are? Yeah. So I immigrated to the United States in 1979 from Iran. My family was fleeing the uh, the revolution there, so we came as political refugees and have made uh, the west coast of California or the, of the United States in California my home pretty much ever since then. A uh, product of both the public school system in Los Angeles all the way through my um, undergraduate years at UCLA and then got a, a JD from Stanford Law School. Went back for my PhD a couple of years later when I realized for a multitude of reasons that the private practice of law was not for me and that my heart was in education. And I've been, I finished my PhD at UCLA in 2015 and have been teaching there ever since. Though I did uh, leave last year to work on my startup, uh, which is an educational tech company, um, which we, we can discuss as well. And um, yeah, I've been exciting to be a part of the educational world for quite a while now. 79, uh, coming over, were, were you in school in Iran at all? Before? I was, uh, no, not in school yet. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it was in, in nursery school and okay. um, came here and was thrown right into preschool, having to learn English at the same time. Yeah, let's, uh, let's unpack that journey. Um, and, you know, what was that like uh, coming through? Obviously, uh, culture shift, a lot of different shifts. Um, yeah, uh, walk us through your, your path in education and some of the, the highlights and some of the, the struggles that you saw as uh, a refugee. Yeah, no, thank you. I, um, was and initially I was an ESL student or considered an ESL student. Mm -hmm. I remember learning English primarily while my mom, who was uh, teaching as a nursing instructor in Iran, and she came out when we came out here, she needed to get her certification and license to practice nursing in California. So while she was studying for her exams at home with me, I would be watching TV, anything from sitcoms to whatever was on soap operas were on and that's how I learned English. I'd like to joke that I learned most of my English watching Three's Company and I Love Lucy. So that was that was classic. Um, and and that became my first introduction to American culture was very much through the pop culture of that period as demonstrated and shown on TV. And education wise, I as an ESL student as somebody who did not have a grasp of the language initially and I became aware of what it was like to learn concepts in that were unfamiliar, delivered in ways that were very unfamiliar in foreign and literally a foreign environment. Mm -hmm. um, also, with I was in the Santa Monica Malibu School District, which at the time was and I think still is very much um, it was a diverse school district. People think of Santa Monica Malibu as very wealthy, but Santa Monica back then in the 80s, especially had um, uh, two sort of very di uh, stark divisions in terms mm -hmm. of socioeconomic um, breakup. And I was in the group that, that my parents were both sort of struggling working class, we were living in a small apartment. And I remember vividly in a being in a classroom setting from early on with uh, a lot of children of uh, Hispanic Latino backgrounds. And so I was in ESL and other programs with them. And then there were the American kids, so to speak, the, the white kids who, you know, for whom English was not a second language, um, some Asian kids mixed in there as well. But I became very aware of these um, racial ethnic differences and how that played out in terms of learning and how different people learned 
uh, and, and what cultural experiences they brought with them into the learning process. So that was something that I noticed right away. And I tried to figure out which category I fell into. Mm-hmm. That had to be difficult. Um, I can't imagine there were many Iranian students around you or even in the area. Um, yeah, how, how did they, how, how was that communication? Because yeah. as an educator, I know um, I've been in a school where there's 15, 17 different languages. It's, it's a challenge. However, it's, it's a necessity. Um, yeah, tell, tell us a little bit about that. How, how did yeah, you figure this out? Yeah, absolutely. This, so the, it, as it turns out, Los Angeles has the largest Iranian population in the world outside of Iran. So okay. now it's become big. And part mm-hmm. of the drawback then for my family was that the community, the refugee community here was sizable enough that it, it provided a support network. Okay. But that didn't extend to the schools. Mm-hmm. And the schools back then, they were only equipped to deal with non-native speakers primarily who spoke Spanish. Right. For everybody else, if you were coming from an Asian country, Southeast Asia, Central Asia, um, another part of the world, and um, Africa, and you were Middle East, they they simply weren't prepared for that. So everything that was the the challenge of of that was not having things explained to me or introduced in a way that was familiar culturally. Forget about them even trying to understand um, or teaching things using Persian language. That wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But it was basically I had to quickly adapt to learning things in English, or I had to understand the Spanish explanation or the Spanish support system, wow. and um, which didn't make sense for me either because it's not what my parents were speaking at home. So I was, it was a sink or swim very early on. I will tell you, it's not easy to get into Stanford Law, but you did. So, uh, so yeah, t- talk us through like kind of your high school years and, and then, you know, your undergrad. Uh, how did all this shift? Because I think as educators, we're all worried about is it going to catch up or are they going to be Absolutely. behind and it's a race kind of thing? Um, yeah, kind of walk us through that path. Absolutely. And one of the things to mention for a lot of immigrant ethnic uh, families and call for um, immigrant students in particular, mm-hmm. the parents come from these societies where the expectations are for them to advance in particular fields. In, in my culture, in Middle Eastern culture, it's oftentimes medicine, engineering, law, but everyone wants their son to be, or daughter to be a doctor. So that mm-hmm. was the path. And then I benefited. I went to UCLA, which is a very large, good, great state school, very diverse, exposed to a lot of different cultural, political, and academic perspectives. And once there, I realized that my voice really belonged, that my desire for um, advocating for create for creativity, for my curiosity was really addressed by the social sciences more so than the life sciences or physical sciences. Mm. And it was a time of big cultural shifts in the United States at the time. I mean, I remember starting at UCLA in 1995 when email was just really introduced, when the internet was just taking off. And um, it was towards, it was the middle of the Clinton presidency. We're getting through the first, Clinton's only impeachment. And there was a lot of activity, a lot of sort of, a lot of things to be aware of. And then on the international front, it was the time of in the Middle East in particular, you had um, the first, excuse me, you had the second intifada, or not the second intifada, you had this period of unrest in uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict, which brought a lot of attention on campus, a lot of students were involved. So I looked around and I said, hey, there's a domestic issue that's compelling with the impeachment, which hadn't hadn't happened in, you know, over uh, 70 years prior. Mm -hmm. And then you've got this international thing going on, which culminated in the assassination of the Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. So there was a lot of political activity 
both focused on international and domestic issues. And it was hard as a student to not be enthralled by this and say, I, I want to learn more. So that is where I became curious. And as I became curious and I wanted to learn, I found myself in a position of helping to inform others who either didn't have the curiosity or didn't were in majors that were learning about these subjects. So I said, great, I'm a poli-sci major. Here's what I know about international conflicts. Here's what I know about the presidency and the Supreme Court and impeachment. So I found myself educating family members, peers who were not in political science. And I said, I, I really enjoy this. Um, and law school seemed like a logical path because I wasn't going to do medicine. And um, I was interested in advocacy, but I thought for private companies. Mm -hmm. And I applied to um, I applied to law school. I applied to all. I, I was very fortunate. I did I did well on the uh, test to get in for law school. The um, LSAT mm -hmm. GPA was very solid. So I was in a good position to choose where I wanted to go. And Stanford was a great fit because of its location was ideal and its small class size. Mm -hmm. um, and then it changed when I got there. And it changed as a product of two events that I think shaped my generation, our generation, mm -hmm. were impacted. Number one was the the Bush-Gore election of mm -hmm. uh, 2000 and the fact that it was thrown to the Supreme Court and it ended the way that it did, which, regardless of which side that you wanted. The fact that the Supreme Court, this institution that I was studying as a first-year law student, was making this decision along partisan lines as the final vote turned out. Uh, really for a lot of us that grew up with a reverence of the Supreme Court and its distance from deciding these things, all of a sudden that was cast into doubt for me, mm -hmm. for many of my peers. And then uh, less than a year later, we had 9-11, mm -hmm. which multiple multitude of reasons, it pierced our veil of safety and security as Americans. Suddenly, you know, we thought we were safe from everything going on abroad because we lived, um, we were, you know, separated by two oceans. Uh, on either side, and also for myself, somebody who had fled a country where um, Islamic extremism or religious extremism was a source of violence or of revolution, all of a sudden to have that, a, a different strain of that phenomenon brought to our shores was very unsettling and it reanimated a lot of old traumas that I didn't know that I had. Mm. And I realized whatever ambition I had for going into private practice and working for a big law firm, this is not my calling. I, I need to, there's too much going on. Again, I was sucked in by international and domestic concerns that I need to, I need to figure this out. I need to go into that, whatever that is. Yeah. That's where I have to go. So that pivot, did that turn right into becoming an entrepreneur? How did, oh, no. what was next? Yeah. The, the next logical step, like many, I think many Americans, I remember in after 9-11, we all felt we wanted to do something to, mm -hmm. to contribute, to help uh, you know, the fight and the defense of the country. I, after I finished law school, I applied for the, I applied to work for the government. I had mm -hmm. two positions I applied for were analysts, one at the FBI and one at the CIA. They were heavily recruiting. The CIA was recruiting on the Stanford campus in particular for analysts who spoke Arabic or Persian, which I did mm -hmm. for, um, reasons that were, um, obvious at, at the time. And I went down that path of wanting to work for the government. And what I didn't realize was that, especially back in 2003 and 2004, the background security check and the clearance process takes a very long time. I thought it would take weeks, ended up taking much, much longer than that. So suffice it to say, that's, that's what I wanted to do was to go work in, in government. And then when I didn't hear back from them after almost a year, and I assumed the application went nowhere, 
I pivoted to, okay, I guess I, you know, better go into private practice working at a firm because that's what else am I going to do? But um, my heart wasn't in it. I had lived through too much. I had experienced too much. I had become aware of too much. I was, to to misuse a phrase, I was woke to certain issues Mm -hmm. that I I simply was complacent to. And that, that awareness made it difficult to do something like going into a big office in, you know, downtown LA, uh, serving billion dollar companies with their stock acquisitions or, you know, mergers and whatnot. Mm-hmm. My heart just wasn't in it. Things became fascinating, uh, which I love, exactly. right? I mean, yeah. I, I, all the way through this story, where it's definitely not done yet, um, I, I hear a lot of like empathy and trying to, to, to weave your way through uh, help, helping others and trying to figure things out uh, along the way, which is, I mean, it's, it kind of builds into what the fascination lab is, right? Um, sort of, right? Is that is that, am you, I hitting you, it? you you know what? It's <laughs> you you hit it right there because you mentioned the word empathy, yeah, which is something that a concept that I wasn't aware of or didn't grasp uh, ten years ago, even five years ago, mm-hmm. and now the idea of empathy ha- is the center of what my company does, and it's part of my teaching philosophy. This idea that oftentimes these challenges, these struggles that the world throws at us, that life throws at us, is because people don't understand the perspective or the condition of someone else, either someone who is similar to them, but especially someone who is different. Mm -hmm. And that lack of empathy. So empathy is what leads to intolerance, can lead to bigotry, but it can just lead to um, neglect. Mm -hmm. And look at what this country has been through in the last four years, even going back to January 6th, there's a segment of the population that feels not heard, that feels neglected. And there's no question that, you know, half of this country fails to properly empathize with the other. Mm -hmm. And empathy doesn't mean you have to like the other side. I don't care if you hate them, but I want you to at least understand them Mm -hmm. so that if you do dislike them, you dislike them for reasons that make sense and not just out of ignorance. So empathy was what we were lacking, I felt, what I was lacking and what others were lacking towards me. And, and so I, that was my empathy journey, if you will. So I think that's a good word that you chose. Yeah, honestly, in education, it, it was thrown to the forefront in the pandemic in a good way, I think. Um, a lot of people started to understand more about everybody involved. Um, we're not there yet, don't get me wrong. But um, you know that's why I asked the questions about being someone from a Middle Eastern country. And I knew right away, even as an educator, I wasn't even there. And I knew that Spanish speaking individuals were probably a little bit on the stage a little bit more than and there was probably not a lot of understanding in and how to move forward with a different language. Um, so now here we are, we have, uh, we have your business, the and and simulations and experiences um you're disrupting education in a great way um i can see your path through the company but but tell us a little bit more about you know the empathetic run of what fascination lab is and and how you plan on changing education for the better in a pandemic social justice all these different isms that are happening um yeah yeah, we'll we'll just start there and and sure talk it out yeah there, there's a there's a there's a mantra that um, that I, I came across not that long ago that I really have have adopted uh, and I believe in and it's it goes it's learn 
earn and then return. So I feel that our journey as students and then later educators and then as mentors to others has to follow that path, right? Learn, earn, and return. So there's a stage in life where your job is to learn as much as you can. Uh, that's during your schooling period. And it's not just the learning you do in school, it's the learning you do outside of school in other phases of life. Mm -hmm. Then you take that knowledge and that experience, you translate it into um, practical skills and you, you earn, you go out there and you earn a living or you essentially earn capital in whatever, that, whatever form that may be. And you build yourself up and you put yourself in a position where then the third stage comes where you can then turn around, return and give that to others. You become a mentor, a supporter, a teacher, an educator, a parent, whatever your role is, but the circle completes. Mm -hmm. And so that's how we, we sort of continue that growth as a society. And I, I really like that because I think that it, it, it does uh, describe the path that I've taken both in forming my company and my own personal development. But the idea is that we, in the, in the learning stage, there are two kinds of learning. There is vicarious learning, which is what almost every class consists of. It's this idea that you are given a, a, a case study, an example, a historical reference, um, an experiment that someone did in the past, and, and you learn from that, right? So we go to school and we take these tests and we're supposed to, and, and these tests reflect what we've learned. The problem I think is that a lot of the, a lot of when we get into the real world, things don't operate on the basis of, of tests and essays and exams. And my students would tell me this all the time. They're like, okay, I'm having a, you know, UCLA has been great socially, but I don't feel like I really learned anything. I mean, I learned enough to pass a test or, or, or pass a course, but I'm not carrying that knowledge on. And um, I would get this question all the time during office hours when students usually want to come just to talk about whatever's on their mind, not just the, the class. And so I began to think about, well, what is, is there a way to change this around? Why are these students not taking practical things and carrying with them? And because what, what I realized that we're not doing, a lot of us educators, or a lot of educators in my experience, was we're not teaching them practical skills that, that go beyond the hard skills of the course. So if I'm teaching a class on diplomacy, international diplomacy, it's important not just that I teach them about here's how Reagan and Gorbachev negotiated in the 80s, but I want to actually teach them about human communication and about collaboration and about empathy, right? One of the things Reagan did well later on was he was able to connect to Gorbachev and see things from the Soviet perspective. And he recalibrated his language from an aggressive evil empire stance to one more of partnership. And whether or not that empathy was genuine doesn't matter. In his diplomacy, he practiced it. So that's a soft skill. And I realized what these students need to learn are these soft skills that transcend this class or that class so that they can carry that with them for the rest of their lives. And if we do that, then we're doing our job as, as educators, I believe. So, but I realized, okay, I'm doing this maybe in my class, but can I come up with a method that I can share with others that, uh, that, that can be used in, in any context for high school classes, college, grade, uh, grad school, and that's where the genesis for my idea came, was to use experiential learning, specifically gameplay, through simulations, to have students role play in a scenario. And in doing so, they're having fun, they're in a competitive game-like environment, but they're learning those exact skills. They're learning how to empathize, they're learning how to manage in a crisis, they're learning how to adapt and be resilient, they're learning how to communicate and advocate, uh, and they're learning how to engage both their peers, their, their teammates, and a broader uh, audience. And that's, that's what I've built the company to do, was to teach those skills, but underneath all of it is empathy. 
-hmm. And whether you're doing diplomacy and you're dealing with an enemy or a rival, or whether you're doing a corporate simulation where you're merging with um, someone else, you are always better off if you can understand the position of others, if you can put yourself in their shoes. It'll make you a better negotiator. It'll make you a better ally. It'll make you a more formidable um, adversary. And it benefits, I think, all around. So that's, that's how I channel that into the work that I'm doing through the company. I got to know some of these amazing, some of the projects that you've worked within the, the format. What, what are some of the, uh, the highlights that you have of, of schools, if you can share them, of, of some of these gameplays and, and the, the simulations that they've done? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of my favorite ones, a story I like to tell is uh, we did uh, for a UCLA class I was teaching last year in the Department of Communications. I had the students, uh, it was a class on political propaganda, on fake news and the weaponization of misinformation. So if you're teaching a class to college students about propaganda and fake news in this time, which was very relevant, the traditional way might be to say, okay, here's the history of propaganda, here's what it looks like, and here's how we can identify it and deconstruct it. I thought there's, got, there's a better way to do this. Why don't I actually have my students create the incubators of propaganda and fake news um, in order to increase their media literacy and civic literacy so that they, when they see the stuff, they know exactly what it is because they've had to make it. So I had the students role play as campaign consultants for various Senate campaigns that were actually happening in 2020. Um, races in Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, Maine, for example. And one particular, one particular one involves around the students who were doing the Colorado Senate race. So it was John Hickenlooper against the incumbent Cory Gardner. Cory Gardner was the Republican, John Hickenlooper the Democrat. So the students were playing campaign um, strategists on each side. And their job was to create a viral social media clip or a video or an article, a meme, a tweet, whatever. They could, they, it was their choice. The, the students doing the Cory Gardner team created a, a uh, posed themselves as a Hickenlooper consultant. And they created a fake Twitter account and they made it ver seem very real. And they put something out there that besmirched Hickenlooper, made him look bad. Mm -hmm. This tweet, after about two hours of being on Twitter, somehow made its way to the Democratic Senate campaign headquarters in Washington and into, to apparently Chuck Schumer's office or somewhere in the senior um, uh, level. Mm -hmm. And they were concerned that this was going to look bad for the Hickenlooper team. So they contact the Democratic uh, campaign headquarters in Colorado and try to get to the bottom of this and, and, and uh, undercut the story to get in front of it. This then makes its way to the Associated Press. And there, one of their reporters out of Denver contacts my student because they responded to that Twitter account. And that my, my student set up the account, so it went to my student. He then reached out to me and said, I have this AP reporter asking me questions about this. What do I do? <laughs> so he looped me in because I, I needed to step in. And, and then the chair of my department was brought in because he was also. So basically, they, for, for a moment, they thought, am I creating a troll factory out of my class? I said, not at all. This is all for a simulation. It's all for education. But for a fleeting moment, for maybe an eight-hour period, my students actually potentially shifted the meter ever so slightly in a actual political campaign. Mm -hmm. And if the goal was to teach them the power of propaganda and social media, what better way to do it than to have them actually give them the tools to create something that did just that. <laughs> so rather than vicariously learning about something, the Trump campaign or 
you know, some other campaign did, they got to be that. Mm -hmm. And that was that to me demonstrates the power of experiential learning and learning something that they could not have done in any other way. Right. Uh, that I will tell you that kid will never forget the AP calling them. <laughs> that's uh, talk about an yeah. experience, right? Um, yeah. So I got to ask then, as you're doing these, um, you know, these experiences and stuff, is there ever a line like where there's there can be safety and these challenges? I'm sure that's why your department chair jumped in as well, um, because in, in our education, especially in, in you know secondary. Um, obviously safety is first. How, do, how, what are your thoughts on, on a safe place to do that? Um, I know some people, and I agree that's, that is a great experiment. It's no one's really getting hurt. It's, it's kind of a, it's an extreme learning experience. However, some people would see it as, you know what, Ben, this is a little bit on. So how do you, how do you deal with that? How do you, how do you clarify that line or do you? Well, that, that's a good question. And oftentimes that line gets pushed with each simulation that we do with one that I did last year after the, the one I just described. So later in the year, it involved students representing uh, different countries as part of this broader negotiation, this uh, diplomacy exercise. And I had one student group that was um, doing India versus Pakistan, and they've had a longstanding um, you know, religious political dispute going back to British partition days. Um, and so the, the students that represented the Indian delegation decided to create a, I believe, a, a TikTok or an Instagram account to advance their views. It wasn't part of the class, but they wanted to do this to supplement. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, they actually incurred the ire of local Indians in India who disagreed with this position this group was taking. And all of a sudden, they were getting very aggressive almost threatening and offensive comments on, on, on social media. And then the students quickly had to shut that account down. It, I can create all these safe spaces I want and, and create an a, uh, environment that is isolated and, and sandboxed. What I'm learning is that these students and the resources, the platforms that are opening up to them are moving much faster than we are. Mm -hmm. And so it's a balance between, I want them to immerse themselves in a real world situation, but the real world is, is scary at times. The real mm -hmm. world is risky. And so I have to balance my role as both an educator and almost like a, a class parent, if you will, a mentor and say, okay, here's where I'm going to take off my professor hat and put on my, let's say, mentor hat and tell you, here's how you would handle interpersonal disputes. Here's how you would handle a situation where somebody might be personally offended by something that you said. Mm -hmm. um, I welcome those moments. I, I think they're great. Even, even sometimes when they, when the students, one student can say something offensive as part of a game, mind you. Right. I say, here's a great teaching moment. Here's a great learning moment where you are, you guys are all in personalities. You're, you're acting, but some of you take the acting a little bit too far or you, you, you know, you, you cross a line, but the other person doesn't know that this is where empathy becomes important. You know that it's a joke or that it's part of your act, but how would the other person take it? Do you know who, what their background is? You know, what traumas they might have that might trigger. So it becomes a, a situation where even if I can't always sandbox and put guidelines on what's safe and okay, if something happens that makes it difficult, then I will turn that into a teaching moment. So at least we all learn from it. I think as uh, educators, that's the best we can do and to not shy away from taking difficult, hard situations and saying, what can we learn? Disrupt education, man. It's uh, honestly, it's becoming 
in in our world in in the secondary level everybody's like you need to become uncomfortable uh, comfortable being uncomfortable yet when you do that um i still think we're moving forward there and it's, it's really refreshing to see uh, an educator like yourself um really you know you you in order for us to move past some of our uncomfortable points well guess what we need to get uncomfortable and uh, and I think that's that's brilliant. Um, and, and it's an amazing amazing platform. Um, I'm a little jealous. I didn't have any of this in my undergrad or my my master's degree. Uh, <laughs> You're always always walking this sitting on the class. Yeah, I, I think it would be fascinating as well. What's uh, what's going here forward? What what does it look like? Where where do you want to go uh, even further with the fascination lab and or you know the the teachings that you do? Well, what it's I've really much enjoyed creating these world building exercises and having students uh, participate. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'd like to do that we're we're uh, shifting now to, to do a little bit more is teaching other educators how to do this. So yeah. I would love for to do basically professional development, working with teachers and saying in, in, in high schools where I think this is really critical because that's where a lot of the students their love of learning, or if they don't develop a love of learning and curiosity, it oftentimes can happen in you know middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. So to create experiences that are immersive, the, the pandemic has revealed how students can suffer when education doesn't isn't done in a way that speaks to them that is engaging. And I I feel that as a as a as a father of three young children and as someone who works with high school and college teachers, I see the challenges of the struggles that students have trying to just be engaged and the struggle that teachers have try to keeping them engaged. I mean, we're all dealing with this. So I would love to empower the teachers to build these experiences themselves uh, to say, hey, what is your lesson plan? If you're teaching humanities or a physics class or biology or, uh, or uh, economics, I don't care what it is, how can we turn it into an experiential learning module, a program to get the same kind of engagement that I'm getting for these classes that I'm designing. Let's have you do it. So let me give you the toolkit, run you through what that looks like. What does a good game look like? How, how do you interact with students? How do you assess them? How do you give them feedback? How do you, how do you then do a wrap up at the end and talk about lessons learned? I would, this is sort of the next step is to get into that um, professional development space really and empower teachers individually so they can do this without us. I can envision this as, you know, we're so segmented in the secondary classrooms, um, but an entire project like this can be a combination of math and science and, and you can just pull out. Um, I cannot wait to see what comes next. Um, I want to give a, a chance to, to have people understand where can they learn more about you um, and uh, the fascination, fascination Lab. I don't know why I'm killing that Absolutely. today. Yeah, sorry about <laughs> no that. Problem. No problem. Um, our, our website is fascinationlab.co. So it's not .com, but .co. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm on Twitter, at Benjamin Rad. Um, I'm not a prolific Twitter user in the sense of posting. I use it a lot to consume information. But I love interacting with people there in uh, both the company Fascination Lab and myself. You can find us on LinkedIn. That's another great resource. Um, and we'd love to hear from people. And we'd love to get into discussions with other educators. I am still learning. I'm a student as much as I'm an educator. And I think uh, may I stay a student for a long, long time because there's a lot I can learn from others' experiences as well. And I'd love to be a part of anyone's journey. Fantastic. Uh, we are all learners until the end, my friend, right? So I love I that. I hope so. 
I really appreciate it. Um, a true disruptor. Thank you for sharing your story, Ben. Uh, and and thank you this for is some, me. Yeah, it's amazing stuff. Um, and uh, we'll put all the notes down there for you listeners if you want to uh, connect. Uh, thank you all for listening to Disrupt Education. We'll check out next time. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. We'll talk to you later.